Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at Romans 1, verses 24 to 32, uh, continuing this section of Romans that, that is uh, uh, speaking of the wrath of God. One of the challenges of preaching through a book of the Bible is that you, uh, you can't uh, skip over or avoid the hard parts, the difficult parts, and we come this morning to one of those uh, difficult sections in in uh, the letter, uh, Paul's letter to, to Romans, and uh, I trust that, that God will, these are important verses, but, uh, uh, but difficult ones. Uh, one preacher said of these verses that uh, they leave little to smile about, and there's certainly truth in that. This is not a feel-good text this morning, but it is one that I think is immensely relevant and important. I invite you to bow with me, if you would, as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Lord God, we thank you for the privilege and joy it has been to enter into your house and worship. And I pray now, Lord, that as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would give us hearts, O oh Lord, that would receive it. Lord, difficult words, challenging words, countercultural words. Lord, give us humility. Uh, give us humble hearts, O oh Lord, to, to receive these words correctly and fruitfully in a way that would bear fruit of transformation in our lives that would be for our good and for the good of this church, for the good of your kingdom, and ultimately, O oh Lord, for your glory. And so we pray for your spirit to do your work in us this morning, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I do invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning from Romans 1, verse 24 to 32. I'll give a little refresher as part of the message, but just uh, before we read, just to remind you that we talked last time about God's wrath being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of, uh, of the unbelieving world of, of, of Gentiles at, at, in Paul's uh, time and the wickedness of unbelief. And Paul continues that discussion now. So we looked last time at why God's wrath is being revealed, and he now picks it up and says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, 
they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You may be seated. <clears throat> In uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there is a character that conveys the awfulness of sin. Gollum is a miserable creature consumed by his selfish desire for this infamous ring. And the longer he's in possession of that ring, the more it distorts his body and his mind and his soul. And he becomes a slave to the ring, and it leads him down this, this path of, of emptiness and, and misery and despair. In our text this morning, Paul describes the devastating consequences of sin. It turns people into golem-like creatures uh, consumed by their sinful desires and doomed to lives of misery. A.W. Tozer once said, a man by his sin may waste himself, and which is to waste that which is most like God. This, he says, is man's greatest tragedy and God's heaviest grief. As we enter into this passage, I, I think it would be helpful uh, to begin with a review of the previous verses uh, from last week and to see how they connect to our text this morning. So last week we, we saw in verses 18 to 23 two reasons why the wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of the unbelieving world. And those two reasons were, first, because they suppress the truth about God, and second, because they exchange the glory of God for worthless idols. So these are the, the two fundamental problems at the heart of unbelief, and this is why Paul says God is exercising his wrath and his judgment against it. And so this explains why we, we, as with Paul, look around and see so much corruption and distortion and brokenness in our world today. God is exercising his wrath and his judgment against these things. And now, as Paul continues his teaching on the wrath of God in verses 24 to 32, he, he goes from the why of God's wrath to the how of God's wrath. He says God is exercising his wrath against the godlessness and wickedness of people by giving them over to their sin. And so his judgment, as Paul reveals it in these verses, his judgment is a judgment of abandonment. It's a, a lifting of his restraints. He allows people to go where their stubborn and rebellious hearts lead. He lets them become like Gollum. And we see in these verses that God hands people over to their own sinfulness in three specific ways. And these three specific ways are indicated in the text by, that re by a, a repeated phrase, God gave them over. So three times Paul uses that phrase, God gave them over, and these indicate the three specific ways in which God is handing people over to their own sinfulness as a means of his judgment against them. So we're going to walk through those three ways this morning. So first, we see that God exercises his wrath against the wickedness of people by giving them over to sexual impurity. 
Paul says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, Paul is talking here about all forms of sexual immorality. The, the language that he uses covers the, the whole array of distorted and sinful sexuality. And Paul says that this sexual sin is related to idolatry. He says in verse 25, they exchanged the, the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So sexual sin, as Paul portrays it here, is an expression of idolatry. It is a failure to honor God as God. And it is a putting uh, our own selfish desires above our desire for him. In Paul's day, sexual sin was rampant in the Roman Empire uh, especially in Corinth, which is, uh, if you remember uh, from the introductory messages, uh, Corinth is where Paul was when he wrote the letter, and uh, the letter to the Romans. And, and Corinth had a legendary history of sexual immorality, including a, a temple for the goddess Aphrodite, uh, served by a reported over a thousand temple prostitutes. You couldn't step out the door in Corinth without seeing some sign of depraved sex. And like the Roman Empire, we are a culture awash in sexual sin. A study was done a few years ago uh, that showed in the span of one year, Americans spent over four and a half billion hours watching pornography on just one porn website. That one site had over 90 billion video views and 44,000 visitors every minute of every day. It's little wonder then that the porn industry is a $100 billion industry bringing in more money than the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. And it's not just these explicit forms of sexuality. We see the, the prevalence of distorted sexuality in, in more subtle ways. Where we're not even fully aware of how desensitized we have become to it. TV shows regularly make a, a punchline out of casual sex and normalize one-night stands. Magazines trivialize sex with their articles and their sex surveys. And the advertising industry shamelessly exploits lust for profit using sexually seductive images to entice us to buy their products. Like Paul, we look around and we see expressions of distorted sexuality everywhere. And this is the first way that Paul says that God is exercising his wrath against the godlessness and wickedness of people. So we look around and see all this, this broken, distorted, the, you know, sort of a wash in sexual sin, and we see evidence of what Paul says, that this is God's judgment and wrath against the godlessness and wickedness of people, giving them over to sexual impurity. The second way that God exercises his wrath against the wickedness of people is related to the first, and that is that God gives people over to unnatural sexual relations. Paul says, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
Now, Paul is clearly talking here about sexual relations between people of the same sex. So contrary to the consistent and prevailing and ingrained message of our culture, Paul is saying that that this kind of sexuality is, in fact, a distorted and sinful sexuality. And and this is the, the clear and consistent teaching of Scripture throughout all of biblical revelation. Sexual relations between members of the same sex is not a choice to be celebrated or affirmed, but it is a sin to be repented of. And we need to understand that and hear it clearly because Scripture sends it clearly. Now, sadly, as many of you know, this clear teaching of Scripture is being challenged. Uh, uh, Of course, being challenged by our culture, we would expect that, we know that, uh, and and we have no... That's not surprising to us. What is a little more surprising is that it is being challenged by some within Christian circles. In fact, as many of you know, this has been a point of contention even within our own denomination, and I'm deeply thankful for the decision of Synod 2022 to adopt the human sexuality report that came through our denomination upholding the biblical position on gender and sexuality. And that report rightly concludes that these sins threaten, biblically threaten a person's salvation. And that scripture calls the church to warn people to flee from them. And that a church that fails to call people to repentance is acting like a false church. And there are a lot of churches that are more and more acting like a false church. Because they are refusing or uh, ignoring or failing to call people to repentance in this area. I did a sermon series several years ago on this topic, and so I don't feel like I need to, to repeat much of that um, And so uh, uh, this morning, but I do want to address uh, the common argument that Paul's teaching here is a culturally conditioned argument, which is to say, there, some say, well, what, what Paul says here applied specifically to his cultural situation, first century Rome, and, and what in Paul's uh, you know, setting that it applied to him, but it no longer applies to our cultural setting. Well, the language that Paul uses in this text dispels that argument. There are two things in particular that show that Paul's argument is not grounded in cultural soil, but is grounded, in fact, in the soil of creation order. So first, Paul's use of men and women in verses 26 to 27. In these verses, it's really striking. Paul doesn't use the typical words for men and women, the words that he uses everywhere else and the words that are, would be the typical words to use. He uses instead the unusual words arsane and thelus, technically translated male and female. Now, these words are an echo of the creation account in Genesis where the writer says of God's creation of humanity, male and female, he created them. And and we see in these words how our culture has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Gender is not fluid but fixed. Uh, It's not a matter of human choice, but it's a matter of divine assignment. And by using this language of creation order, Paul is reminding us that what is normative and what is binding in human sexuality is that which maintains this sexual distinctiveness, this gender distinctiveness between male and female in marriage according to God's creational intent and design. That's the first 
evidence or the first textual clue or textual reality that points to that this is not grounded in cultural soil. The second one is that Paul's use of the words natural and unnatural. They also, like male and female, point back to creation order. The word natural means according to God's created order. And so even so when Paul talks about exchanging natural sexual relations for unnatural sexual relations, he is saying that same-sex sexual relations violate what God has ordained and established in the very order of creation. So it is not a cultural issue. It is a creation order issue. And therefore, it is binding on all humans in every culture and every age. And yet, just as in Paul's day, the prevailing climate of our culture is one in which this message is scandalous. To say what I'm saying is scandalous in our culture. Like Paul, the prevailing message of our culture is a message that normalizes and celebrates unnatural sexual relations. And we need to hear, especially in our current cultural context, we need to hear what Paul says. God is exercising his wrath against the godlessness and wickedness of people by giving them over to these unnatural sexual relations. Why is it that we look around and we see, especially in the last decade, such a you know, widespread and, and sort of this, uh, this uh, um, hyperbolic curve, this, this, uh, uh, this amazing explosive uh, growth of change in this area? Why is it that there's so, it seems to be so much more prevalent and, and, so, and, and uh, talked about uh, now than it was even just 10 years ago? Well, I think a major part of the answer to that question is that God is exercising his wrath against the godlessness and wickedness of people by giving them over to these unnatural sexual relations and the celebration of these unnatural sexual relations. The third way that God exercises his wrath against the wickedness of people is by giving them over to a depraved mind. Paul says, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And then Paul goes on to give what is the, the longest list of vices in all of scripture. He, go, he goes on to list 21 specific uh, vices or sins that flow from a depraved mind. And some have tried to, to categorize this list of sins and sort of divide it into, you know, there are sins of hatred and sins of speech and sins of pride and, and you know, different, give it different categories and things like that. I, I don't think that it's necessary to do that. Because I think Paul is simply showing, with, with his sort of excessive stacking of sins, he's simply showing how widespread human sin is. As one commentator said regarding these verses, sin tumbles over sin with dizzying speed, and the human desire to rebel against God seems to be the only unifying principle. So the only thing that, that ties these, this list of sins together is that is that uh, human desire to rebel against God. Paul, in this list of sins, is showing us the totality of Gentile sin. The list sends the message that, that no aspect of human life is left unscathed by the corruption and the condemning power of sin. When I was in seminary, 
I lived in seminary housing with two roommates, and we decided to share the burden of meal preparation by having us each you know, take turns preparing meals for, for, for the whole, for, for all of us. And so we, you know, every third day, one of us would prepare the whole meal, and we would all sit down at a table and, and eat together. Well, one of my roommates loved fish, and not the normal kind of fish, you know, that, that we, you know, the Wisconsin fish you catch in a lake and it tastes good, you, you know, shore lunch and that kind of, you know, the ex, more exotic, you know, the kinds of the kinds of fish when you eat it, it's staring back up at you with, with the head still intact and all that. The problem was he was the only one who liked his fish meals. My other roommate and I couldn't stand them. And so we had a little talk with him, and he graciously agreed to do meals other than fish, and we were so immensely relieved. And I remember the, the first meal that my roommate made, uh, this, this fish-eating roommate, the first meal that he, that he made, uh, the, the, the non-fish meal, and it was this delicious-looking chicken hot dish. And we were so thankful. Like, oh, the, we never knew we had this in him to make a meal like this, and it looked, it looked amazing, and it was, he, wouldn't, he kind of, you know, it was elaborate, and we were so hungry. We sat down to eat, and the first bite, curiously, tasted like fish. And so it was with all the meals that he made. He made spaghetti and meatballs that tasted like fish spaghetti with fish meatballs. He made a pizza one night, and we thought, finally, a meal that's not going to taste like fish, and it was fish pizza. It t- the pizza tasted like fish. But the worst was when he generously offered to make our Thanksgiving meal, and he went all out, and it looked beautiful, but it all tasted like fish. We had fish turkey with fish stuffing and fish potatoes with fish gravy. And he even made homemade bread that somehow tasted like fish bread. And that's when the truth came out, that he had, without telling us, bought a whole tub of fish powder. And every time he would make a meal, because he liked fish so much, he thought this would be a good compromise, he would just put this fish powder in everything that he made. Paul is telling us that sin is to the unbeliever like fish powder was to my roommate's cooking. It corrupts everything. Which is to say, it it leaves the whole mind depraved. So that no aspect of human life is untouched and unpolluted by sin. The, the word mind is a translation of the Greek word nous. And, and the word means more than just intellectual capacity. So Paul's talking about more than just how we think. The, the, the word uh, has, the, has its roots in the, the center of moral reasoning and willing. A depraved mind is a mind so corrupted by sin that it is unable to understand and acknowledge the will of God. Unable to comprehend, let alone put into practice, any kind of God-glorifying morality. And so you look around our world and wonder, well, why is it that there's so much moral corruption? Well, it makes sense because a depraved mind is going to lead to all kinds of depraved actions. And people who do not accept and honor God as God cannot and will not and will not even be able to see the, the, the desire to put into action or to to practice any kind of God-glorifying morality. 
God is exercising his wrath against the godlessness and wickedness of people by giving them over to a depraved mind. Now, at this point, I think it will be helpful, and we're going to do this occasionally throughout Romans, because Romans is a dense book. It just is. And so at times, you got to take a step back and kind of get our bearings and see where we're at. And so I think it'll be helpful to take a step back and see the bigger picture of this text. We have to remember the context and the purpose of Paul's writing at this point in his letter, and that is that Paul is showing us why the world is the way it is, and the reason why... Uh, there's so much corruption and, idol- and, and depravity is because God has given people over to their sinful desires as a means of judgment. And the fundamental problem at the root of it all is godlessness and wickedness. And this, this uh, expresses itself, or there's two main things at the heart of this godlessness and wickedness, and that is people, number one, have suppressed the truth about God. That is, they, they have seen his power and his divine nature in, in the beauty of his creation, that they see enough of who God is and his, his nature and his divine power, and yet they have turned away from him. They have rejected him as God. And number two, they have exchanged his glory for the worship of created things. And a holy God, we've got to understand this, a holy God cannot sweep God-belittling sins under the rug of the universe. A just judge cannot let sin go unpunished. And so as an exercise of his wrath and judgment, God has given people over to these, their sinful desires. This is why the world is the way it is. Behind so much of the moral corruption is the hand of God exercising his wrath and judgment. Now I hope by now that we have come to a clearer understanding of what Paul is saying in these difficult verses, but... It's not enough to just end there. We don't, it's not enough to come away just knowing what Paul is saying. We, we, have to, we, we have to connect what he says to our lives today. And so I want to leave us this morning with three points of application. Number one, we need to uphold firmly and boldly the biblical stance on human sexuality and gender. We need to hear and to heed what Paul says, that the embracing and the promotion of these and other sins are an indication of God's judgment and wrath. If what Paul says is true, then much of our world is under God's judgment. And we need to call them to repentance if we, if we care. And note the sobering and strong words of Paul at the end of the text in verse 32. I think this is, is an, such an important verse this is, and, and we have to understand, this is a summary concluding statement. So Paul is not only summarizing verses 29 to 31 in verse 32, he's summarizing the whole section. And this is what Paul says in verse 32, this summary concluding statement. Although they know God's righteous decree, because again, God has revealed enough of himself through creation... Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Our attitude towards sin matters. Paul says it is a grievous error and sin against our holy God, not just to engage in these sinful actions, but to approve of those who practice them. And this is where we are at. This is exactly where we are at. We live in a culture in which the dominant message is a message of approval of those who do things that are worthy of judgment in God's eyes. That is a 
a scary, dangerous place to be. We must not join in that kind of approval. The spectators in the Roman Colosseum applauding the killing of captives and slaves were no less culpable than the emperors who instituted those horrific games. And so, too, we are culpable for our attitude toward the sins that Paul lays out in these verses. Number two, we need to walk humbly with compassion and care with those who are struggling with sexual sin. Too often, the church has approached this issue from a stance of arrogance and distance, and our treatment of sexual sin is a glaring indictment of our own grievous sin of hypocrisy. We need to be more Christ-like in our engagement with this issue because Jesus never did anything to condone, uh, to con compromise the truth or, or to condone what was sinful. But we do see him again and again leading people out of their sin with compassion and care. We see him breaking boundaries to build relationships with people caught in these kinds of sins and scandalizing the religious when he did so. Too many Christians are all about judgment and truth without genuine compassion and care, and it is a disgrace to the Lord that we claim to follow. As we strive to be bearers of the truth in the name of Christ, let us strive equally to be agents of grace and love in his name. And let us be careful not to single out sexual sin as more deserving of God's judgment than other sins. The Bible gives more attention to the sins of pride and idolatry and, and greed than it does to sexual sin. As C.S. Lewis once said, a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, he says, it's better to be neither. Let us not condemn sexual sin in others without humble examination and confession of the hundreds of ways that we ourselves have been sinful, including sexual sin. Number three, we need to remember Paul's overarching aim to reveal the beauty and power of the gospel. We have to keep in mind that Paul is showing us the darkness of human sin and rebellion as... So he, there's a purpose to this. He, he's taking us somewhere. He's doing this as, as, a, as a backdrop to display the dazzling jewel of the gospel. That's where Paul is going. He's in the process of showing us that all humans are under the power of sin so that we are good and ready for the good news to come in chapter 3. That though we are deserving of God's judgment, we have been made right with God through faith in Christ. We, we, we cannot, see, Paul not understands that we cannot fully appreciate the gift of our salvation without seeing the depth of our depravity. And so he, he, ta he takes some time to take us there to the depth of our depravity, to linger in the darkness for a while. Because he knows that by showing us the awfulness of God's wrath against sin, he's preparing us to behold the wonder of God's love displayed at the cross. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. We see in Gollum the power of sin and where the path of unrepentant sin leads to a life of emptiness and misery and despair.
But we see in the cross the sheer freedom and joy that comes through faith. For at the cross, Christ willingly took upon himself the full weight, the the full weight of God's wrath against human sin. And, And so for those who believe and follow Jesus as Savior and Lord, we can say with the prophet Isaiah that we all like sheep have gone astray, that each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For at the cross, he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. The consequences of sin are tragic, but there is a stream of grace that runs deeper than sin. There is a love that swallows the flames of wrath. To God be the glory. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response, I pray, O oh Lord, they would hear our silent prayers as we contemplate and ponder your wrath against the godlessness and wickedness of an unbelieving world. Lord, hear our prayers of confession and repentance for the ways that we have either been judgmental and hypocritical when it comes to sexual sin or for the ways that we have approved of those who are engaging in what Paul clearly identifies as distorted and sinful sexuality. Lord, hear our silent prayers and lead us to the beauty and wonder of the cross. Oh, how deep, oh Lord, your love for us. How vast beyond all measure that you would give your only son to make a wretch your treasure. Lord, we praise you for the depth of your love. Lead us, oh Lord, in your truth and in your grace and in your love that we may stand firmly and boldly and humbly in that truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.